Well, I think it's, uh, again, going back to the economy question, the sort of promise of the sharing economy or the collaborative economy is that we move away from the burden of ownership and just have access to the use of. So cars are a great example. Go-car, which you see in Dublin now in most cities, was actually developed here by eco-villagers and then sold on. I think that idea of um, sharing, um, we could do a lot more on. But I think the, I, the, 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 the promise of it, I mean, we're seeing it being co-opted a little in the platforms that help us share. So like Airbnb or Uber, we're sharing a, a vacant car or a spare room or a house that we have. I, I think we need platform cooperatives that are owned by the users. And so say you now see a lot of alternatives for Uber that's actually owned by the taxi drivers and the stakeholders that use it, or Fairbnb to move away from Airbnb and to actually keep the wealth distributed amongst the users rather than being sucked off to shareholders. So it's just a, a corporate model. Welcome to this week's podcast around the topic of community. So this is part of our community series where we're really exploring the different aspects of community so that we can all build more resilient together. Yeah, it really is. It's been so much fun. Uh, today we interviewed Davy Phillips, someone who came across about 30, I'd say, well, maybe 25 years ago, um, back in Dublin. He's, re he's been all about community for 30 years and one of the founding members of Ireland's first eco-village and very much at the heart of the Centre for Sustainability in Dublin. So he's been living sustainability, local, local economics, so many different interesting things. And I think the one thing that Davey brings that's very different is that he's about the practical application of it within an intentional community. So it's his experience of putting ideals into practice in a, in a kind of space that they've deliberately created. Fascinating, wonderful conversation. Two, two things which I loved where he talked about going from the I to the we, which is lovely. And he said going also moving away from the ego to the eco. Ha ha ha. They're kind of nice. Um, but it was a really fun conversation. It was very relaxed. And he, he was based down in, in the eco village, which he lives in Dana Clock Jordan in, in Tipperary. Really interesting. Loads of lovely takeaways. I really hope you enjoyed it. And as we said, this is part of our community series. So if you haven't listened to the pre previous episodes, check them out after. They're brilliant. We are getting so much out of this and we really hope you are too. So let us, let us know on social media what you thought about it because that always just helps kind of keep it relevant, keep the conversation going about it because I think that's so important. And stay tuned for a wonderful podcast. Cheers. Cheers. To, to kick it off, Davey, could you tell us, like, give us some kind of a, a, a short summary of the story thus far of the village? Because I know from conception, it probably started at the roots of Cultivate was the precursor for it. it started, I was reading, started in 1999 in Dublin Food Co-op. Yeah, but I'd love to hear the story from your mouth because you've obviously been pivotal to it all and been catalytic right throughout. So I'd love to hear. And listeners, well, would, it would contextualize things. Well, it's a cooperative venture. So, and it's a very ambitious project. So it did start back in the late 90s when a number of us, a number of us were activists and involved in cooperatives and hanging around Dublin Food Co-op which I thought was like a hotbed of radical activity. I, 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 and then my friends would go, I went down there, it was a bunch of old ladies doing their shopping. I was like, oh, I need to <laughs> hang out a bit longer and have chats with people. Um, but in the late 90s, like uh, we had been doing a big event in Maynooth University. Um, we, we set up a student society, a few of us that are still here, still based here, uh, called Low Impact. And we, were, we brought Vandana Shiva over in, two, in 1998, I think and um, really got into the GM thing and stopping GM crops and getting into trouble. And we were arrested and had to go to court. 
And I suppose at that time, a lot of us were interested in being proactive rather than reactive. What are we for rather than what we're against? And so uh, Gavin Hart and a few others, uh, we came up with an idea for a very ambitious idea of an eco-village where people could come and visit and learn things and go back to their own communities. So we did set up in September 1999, we launched an educational charity called Sustainable Projects Ireland. And uh, for, I don't know, every month for maybe a year and a half, we did presentations on who we are and what we want to do. And then after about a year and a half, we started looking for land. We had enough people, we had about 35, 40 people now join us. And we decided we were... Um, and and we Dave, 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 just to interrupt you, were, were you a bunch of idealists and dreamers? Or were some of you, like, obviously some of you must have been very practical. Because, like, it's one thing to have an idea. We're going to set up this village and this wonderful thing. Yeah. But it's another thing to kind of actual, you know, to start going in and getting momentum behind it in that physical sense. Well, I think at the very start, we were quite smart in making sure that we had engineers and architects and project managers, as well as activists and cooperators. So our original board, which we launched in 99, had representatives from all those sort of aspects to give us that diversity. And then, and the big change though for us, when we started, we, we were imagining being like Fintorn or other eco-villages that we had visited, where, um, you know, maybe 18, 20 families are out in a field on their own. We rethought that. And so there's so many villages and towns in decline. We're about to join an existing rural village or rural town where there's original services. So that's when we started looking for land seriously. We had a set of criteria, a train station, good public transport, good services, and 100 acres in a village. And so we looked for, we probably spent a year looking at different pieces of land, then eventually um, visited about eight with our about 35, 40 of us. We visited the eight top sites and we made the decision that we were going to go to Clock Jordan, to the site we'd identified in Clock Jordan. I mean, there was a number of reasons for that. It was in the middle of the country, not up in Donegal or down in West Cork. So it was accessible as a destination for learning. It was also on a train line. So you could get back to Dublin or Limerick quite easily. Um, and it was also a very progressive little town already, village, and it had had a serious population loss. It was under threat of losing school teachers, post office, train station. So they were actually actively going, come and join us. If, if we could get the strength of our village back, it'd be great. So we went, that was in 2003, we identified it. 2004, we got the planning permission and bought it. And, and, and that's like... And and how, how do you go about getting planning permission? Or, like, no, I'd even say, how do you buy it? Like if there's 35 people, how do you like, did everyone just pony in their money or did you kind of go, okay, this costs, like how does the finances work for, because I'm sure well, people listening would go, okay, me and my mates, we'd love to do something like this. How well, do you go? Yeah. Like, well, let's imagine we're in a boom. Ireland is booming. This is like before the downturn. <laughs> So we went to the bank and thought, we'll borrow a million euros to buy the land. That's how much the land was. So the, the land was probably one of the highest prices that had been uh, in the state's history. It'd been really pushed up. It's maybe getting back to the, those sort of levels again, but at that time it was expensive. We were looking at 67 acres is what we were buying. So it was a million euros just for the land, never mind the, the infrastructure and everything we built on it. But we started with the land. So we put a deposit on it for a year. Uh, in permaculture, you want to observe your land for almost a year. You see it in every season. You see where the, the damp spots are, where it floods, where the cold pockets are. So we had it for a year to observe and we did lots of design and sort of thinking 
and trained loads of the members up in, in permaculture, ecological design, just to, to look out that it was. But your question, uh, the, the finance. So we thought we would, we had, uh, we had a little business plan. We had 40 members. We had identified a bit of land, went to the bank and said, uh, we've got this idea for an eco village, an eco what? Uh, a, a sustainable community. And um, we need a million euros to, to buy this land. And they just looked at us as if we've got two heads. I mean, they were giving money out for anyone at that stage. Anyone could get, get finance. So we had to rethink. The, 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 the bank turned us down. Uh, we looked at what some uh, co-housing and other projects done in the UK called Loan Stock. And with 40 members, we issued a little loan stock, which is like a little personal loan from friends and families of 5,000 euros that we'd pay back within a year. And with 40 of us, in four months, we raised about half a million euros together. And then we went to an ethical bank, our clan credo and ethical investment trust. And we said, uh, this is all about sustainability. You'll love it. It's about community. You'll love it. They did love it. And they give us the other half. So we borrowed a bunch of money from friends and family uh, added, uh, matched that with Clan Credo and bought the land. Once we had the land, this is where it gets interesting because we just leveraged up the asset. So we got the zoning from the county council that this is going to be for sustainability. First time it's been uh, a, county, a local authority had zoned for sustainability. And we um, got the planning permission. So we had two things. We got it revalued and the land's worth now like four and a half million. So we just went back to the bank and said, uh, you remember us? Uh, well, now we've got an asset worth four and a half million, and we need another four million, five million to do the infrastructure. So when I'm talking about these figures, I'm now going, for that is absolutely crazy. No one's going to do that. Um, but this was the boom time, and we were trying to, as a community, leverage an asset and uh, borrow. So we we did. We borrowed probably about five million in total. We put the infrastructure in. Uh, our financial model was a not-for-profit now. We were a not-for-profit. Our financial model was that we would sell sites to our members. We had 130 sites on our plans. We'd sell sites to the members, and that would bring in the six, five and a half, six million. And what does, now, now a couple of questions there. So one, when you say infrastructure, does that mean roads and sewage and water uh, and that type of thing? It's quite major. Um, uh, the, all the piping, uh, the, 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 all the, the, the district heating we put in, so all the um, sewerage piping, it's quite major, actually. Well, what, do, what, does, what does district heating mean? Sorry, these words, I just, I, in the village, they have the, you have Ireland's only district heating central system, so it's essentially it's central heating for the community as opposed to individual systems. Exactly. If you imagine that um, we've, we've got, currently got 55 houses up, We've got maybe 130 if we once we get moving again. Um, but just on that, just for, for that question, the, the district heating system, centralized renewable energy, community-owned district heating, it can cater for about 130 homes. Right now it's only 55 homes. And it sends hot water through insulated pipes to all the houses on a dish on a, on a link. So you could imagine if we had all had our individual heating systems. There'd be trucks coming in with wood pellets or wood chip or oil or gas or whatever. It'd be chaos. So to have a central system for a, a community makes a lot more sense from a sustainability point of view, I think. But just to finish on the, the buying the land, just to finish that little story and where we got to. So our uh, impression was that we were able to pay all that money back, that huge investment or huge borrowings we'd taken by selling our sites to our members. In, 19, in 2007, um, we had deposits 
on every single site. People from all over had put a deposit, a major deposit, like 10, 15,000 on a site. And we were ready to finish. You know, that we sell the sites, we build the houses, we're going. And then the economic crash happened. So people were in negative equity, couldn't sell a house, lost their job. We lost, I'd say, over half our membership. And we've we're really been struggling since then. I mean, we're, we're recovering now. We haven't built many houses um, since the initial wave. The first houses were moved into in 2009. I mean, if you visit now, even when you were here before, Steve, it's, it's growing up. It's like, because it's, it's, it's got edible landscapes and we've planted thousands of trees within the houses and our own woodlands and everything, it is becoming a little oasis. So, but we're hoping to move into a new building phase soon and we have, ideas and plans for that wow Very and, and how much does a house cost like so say if i want to go down like do you, you buy a site and can and okay i have a, a couple of questions here now so one how much does a house cost and two can anyone just go say i want to buy a house or do you have to kind of almost like interviewing for friends or interviewing for community members do you have to go no you don't wear brown sandals you're not allowed to come no you work in facebook you're definitely not allowed to come. you know or what <laughs> yeah. how does this work well, I think this project's a lot more mainstream than most people will think of. When people arrive, they're all, you've got proper roads and your houses look conventional, even although they're high performance. But our model is that members buy a site and build their own house. So people decide on the size, um, it has to be high performance. So I'd say for an eco house, people are spending between 150 to 300,000. Now, I, myself and a lot of the original members and the members of the eco-village don't live in the eco-village. We live in Claude Jordan. I mean, it's quite an integrated uh, community. Um, but I'm aiming, I'm trying to look at an affordable, affordable model like co-housing. So rather than the burden of debt being on our own individual shoulders, which most young people, even young professionals, can't get onto that housing market unless they've got a big inheritance. So to take that burden of debt off our own shoulders, have a cooperative has uh, the burden of debt, and to have a little pocket neighborhood where we would co-own the, 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 our homes, have our own homes, but have shared facilities. And I think we need new models of, um, and new tenure models of housing in Ireland. It's not just eco houses or high performance houses. We now need to think about how they're clustered, how we have communities. And the eco-village itself is one of the best examples of community-led housing. But now that model of community-led housing with community land trusts or co-housing uh, really show that there's different approaches. It's mad. In Ireland, our only two ways to secure a home is mortgage, a massive debt, literally means the grip of death. You know, do you actually want that mortgage? Or rental with no secure tenure, mostly. And that's our options. You go to Europe and there's loads of examples, diversity of ways to secure your home. And your home's more than just an asset you speculate on. So our next wave of building will include private houses. It'll include maybe more sheltered housing. We're looking at like a terrace for refugees. And, and I'm interested in co-housing neighborhoods where we have much more shared facilities, a shared laundry, a shared um, uh, cars, even a little car club for this neighborhood. So it'll be a pocket neighborhood within a neighborhood, uh, which is already showing uh, that sort of community led and the benefits of community right now. But a lot, we've got a long way to go. And it's no utopia, by the way. I mean, it's oh, not I, easy. Uh, it's not an easy thing to live in community. Oh, I can, I, I've heard you describe it as one of the longest self, 
or Develop- self-development course ever. you've yeah, ever done. you tell us about that? Because like, just to give a context, because I want to come up to speed here now. Steve did loads of research on this. So, so essentially like, so by living in the eco village, you're all, you all have your own houses, you all own your own houses, but you've got edible landscape all around it. So I can walk down the road and when there's apples in season, I can pick apples and there's, you know, there's, there's a farm, a community farm, whichever, does everyone buy into? agriculture? Or, yeah, it's yeah, a CSA. Yeah. So, so I can put in, you know, a hundred euro at the start of the year or whatever it is, 250 euro. And I get a vegetable box each week from the farm. Is that how it works? Well, I think there's maybe we'll just step back a little because there's something to understand, Dave, that is we're an ecosystem of different businesses, initiatives, and we've very little rules. So not everyone that lives in the eco village are members of the farm, which farms about 14 acres of the eco village in community supported agriculture. So we pay 16 euros a week and we get two deliveries of veg and we're employing two farmers and we have about 10 year-long interns that that uh, that come and stay with us so but the the you have to understand this ecosystem approach which is a bit like your gut health or that how important diversity is it's the same for community health as well as soil health or our gut health that diversity so in some ways it, it's so complex like there's maybe 15 different learning providers or each with their own companies and people get a license from the eco-village. So the farm has a license. Bruce Darrell, who does the research gardens, has read uh, the Red Gardens YouTube channel is really interesting. He has like six gardens doing no dig, single dig, uh, double dig, and all the different processes and, sh- and, and disseminates the learning from that. He gets a license like the farm to, to, to work that piece of land and steward that piece of land. So it is quite a complex ecosystem of diverse initiatives that people can, if they want, sign up to. We have a couple of informal car clubs. Only people that want to be part of that are part of that. There's some people in this community I hardly ever see, you know, so not everyone's engaged with doing tours or the, 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 the visits from universities or community groups that come through, or they're not living and working often. I mean, they're living, but they're not working in the, in the, in the, in the, in the estate. So it is very diverse. Uh, that's it. But um, similar to similar to your the health and well-being comes from that diversity, I think. Yeah. I think that's very open minded because often you can tend to think of these utopian places. It's only one type of person. It's as Dave mentioned, brown sandals, yeah. it's sustainability, yeah. yoga. It's, it's yoga, it's all this. Whereas uh, I quite admire the fact that you're that there there is a focus on diversity because I guess through this community series, we're learning the importance of diversity yeah. for any o- ecosystem to be sustainable. And resilient, which is mostly my work with cultivating sustainable Ireland now, is how do our communities not even just become more sustainable, so having less impact, but can be resilient to the shocks that are coming down the line. Because if we think tomorrow is going to look like yesterday, we're deluded. You know, things are fundamentally going to shift, uh, either forced to shift because of weather or climatic reasons or economic shocks or social shocks, they'll make a shift. So the more we can prepare for for this as communities, not on our own, uh, like bunker mentality or something, head with the hills with your, um, with your, with your uh, resources and tins of beans or something to, 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 to actually be able to not just thrive, not just survive, but thrive in our localities by thinking about how we do more together. How do we meet our needs more locally? I think is, is so important. And resilience doesn't have to just mean emergency preparedness. I mean, for as individuals, the more resilient we are, 
the, the, the quicker we recover from shock or adversity or we get knocked down, we bounce back up. So it's our bounce back ability. But with community resilience or local resilience, we want to take that shock to sort of break through into a new way of doing things. So it's breakthrough rather than bounce back into new approaches to provide our food, to restore our ecosystems, uh, to, to strengthen our local economy, uh, and, and sort of avoid the worst of the disruptions from a dependency on long, global, very vulnerable supply chains. You know, can we do more locally? So for me, it's not just being sustainable, it's being resilient as well, I think. I love that distinction, like, because I heard you talk uh, about moving from a me-based community to a we-based community or from ego to eco, which I thought was brilliant. I thought, good man, Davey, I really like this. And I think that ties in with your, you saying that expression that it's been the biggest self-improvement uh, challenge ever. And I know you try to apply a consensus decision-making process, which sounds like a very fancy word for saying everyone's equal, there's no boss, and you all have to agree on things. There's no sense of majority rule. It's like everyone has to agree. So I imagine something like that requires such patience and is so challenging. And I wonder if you could talk about it. Yeah, I think the, the quote I said years ago, and I think it was Rob Hopkins said it initially, was that getting involved in an eco-village or a community project like this, this scale, is the longest self-development course you've ever taken because you're constantly learning about yourself. And I think that shift that you just mentioned, Steve, that sort of um, ego to eco, you know, I think that's a, a worldview that we need on this planet if we're going to survive and have a hospitable planet by the end of the century. We need to move from that individualistic, uh, just consumerist uh, culture that reduces everything to its parts to where we actually start to see relationships and connection and the value and health and well-being of the whole is good for me as a part of that whole. So that's quite a fundamental shift that I think we're seeing. We've been seeing it for maybe decades now, slowly, but we need to accelerate that shift. So we're thinking systemically, we're thinking whole systems, we're thinking holistically. And I think you guys are contributing to it with even your stuff on health gut, because when you think about what's going on in ourselves, it's a, it's a mirror of what's going on in society, in the soils, in the cosmos. So there's something happening that we need to fit into. So that shift, from the me to the we, from the individual to the collective, I think is going to be a really important one. The, the making decisions, again, you need to be a, a bit more self-developed, I think, uh, to, be, to, to work well in a consensus decision-making environment. And a lot of community groups and co-ops have moved from consensus to consent decision-making with dynamic governance and what's called sociocracy and governance by peers. So we're moving from everyone agrees, which when I say, oh, we do decisions by consent, most people will raise their eyes and go, well, that's a lot of meetings, isn't it? And you go, yeah, that's a long process, a lot of meetings. Where with consent decision-making, is there any more objections before it's, we just move on? Is it safe enough to just give it a go? So we can move a bit faster, a bit more agile with consent decision-making rather than traditional communities and um, lefty groups use consensus. I think there's a shift going on now, uh, which will make it a bit more uh, agile and nimble, I think. Well, wow. so the slight difference is consent. It's like, is there anyone in opposition to this versus consensus? Everyone has to agree to or, it. Or it almost yeah. makes me, it almost makes me, we've been learning more and more about blockchain and cryptocurrencies yeah. and how, how they can be used as interesting tools. And certainly within the blockchain, I believe there's interesting means of using consent, decision-making and 
you know, using it as, I, I don't know if it's something. It's, it's again, that sense of decentralization. And even Bruce Parry, who we interviewed, who lived with a lot of indigenous tribes, he remembered, he, he lived with 14 different tribes and then he met the Panam tribe in Borneo. And they were the first egalitarian, non-hierarchical community that lived like a we. And they felt like they were yeah. a part of the forest. And I think what you're trying to apply with this sense of consent decision-making, that sense of no one is the boss and that everyone's, an equal in essence. And how does it work? So what, so as you said, okay, so just so I understand it. So, so everyone living in the eco village, some people partake, some people don't partake. And some people, you can live there just like you could live anywhere else, you know, but for the people that do want to partake in it, what collective decisions do you have to make or what, like what groups can I be part of if I do join it? Well, as again, it's the complexity. So Sustainable Projects Ireland, which are a charity on the land, develop it have like three big domains. They have like education and research, which I'm part of. So that's a, a domain of activity. There's a number of working circles in it, but there's cohesion amongst everyone that's thinking education and research. There's a working group or a primary activity called uh, land use. How do we steward the land? They look after the licenses on the land, uh, the woodlands. So we've got, I don't know, 20,000 trees or something planted. You know, So they're thinking about all the decisions around uh, the woodlands and then there's development uh, how do we progress the development development phase how do we unblock the the blockages and uh, some of the planning that we're working through these are the big domains but that's only sustainable projects ireland then we get to the farm the farm has the domain of production so there's like 12 people on the farm every day making decisions about where we're growing and planting but there's also an education wing of the farm. There's also this new food hub where we're looking at wider markets using digital marketplaces. So it's so complex that you have to be aware of where we're making the decision. If for the eco-village it's a policy decision, it needs to be made with all the members at one of the assemblies that happen every month. And there's a process to do that still with consensus. If we're making a decision at the farm, it's an operational decision, it's by consent by the people that have the most awareness or knowledge of the topic we're making the decision on. So again, it's just knowing what type of decision are we making? Where is it made? Who needs to be involved? And can we just, is it safe enough to give it a go? We can review it next week or next month. Uh, but there's something in that. Again, the complexity, uh, it's, uh, it just makes it a bit more challenging. Wow, amazing. May I ask a question? Or are absolutely, you, are you sorry, pepper? Sorry, something which I just wrote down here now was, it was about, so like throughout this, this series on community which we've been doing, we've been aware more and more about economics and that the current economic system seems to be very challenging for a lot of people that yeah. we're all, I see it in my lifetime. Like you're, we're all tend to be swimming quicker just to keep up with what's going on. Modern consumerism and the, the you know, the ideals of owning your own house and all these kind of allures and whatever, obviously like you've been on the cutting edge with the eco village and with, you know, with what you've been doing, what other like economic models that you've tried or seen that have worked, which is harnessing the power of the community? Because I'm sure you've come across lots of them and tried some that have worked better than others. Yeah, back in the 90s, I was involved with setting up uh, FASTA, the Sustainable Economics Foundation with Richard Douthwaite, the economist who'd written books against growth, but also books on local economies. Like when I arrived in Ireland in the sort of mid 90s, there was 36 local exchange trading systems, 36 across the country. Now, what's, a local, what's a local, local exchange, exchange trading system is like everyone in the community has a directory that says, this is what I need and this is what I can offer. And it's like a barter system, except you don't have to do it directly. You don't have to get my eggs and I get your chicken. 
uh, you've just, you can go, this is my offering. And if I get someone from you, I can get a little script or someone that says, uh, I mowed so many units. It's like a local currency system. But with the thinking of Richard Douthway was in a way, ecological economics. We're uh, still very much a linear economic system. We've still got an economy that's based on extraction and a take make waste model. It's quite, we want to just consume because that's what our prosperity is measured on. So we've known for a long time, we need to move to models of prosperity without growth, without having to grow all the time. You know, if this was a, if we were a human and we kept growing, you'd be the elephant man, you'd be abnormal. You know, systems don't just keep growing. Um, so we need a system beyond that. And there's been brilliant examples of economists that have brought in this ecological. But you've probably heard now of donut economics, which is regenerative. Regenerative economics to me is the best framework for global and local economics. And it really just made the donuts a silly name. Our movement's full of um, terms that are just a bit silly. Donut economics. If you say that to a mainstream economic economist, I'm into donut economics. Oh, really? Right? Like Homer Simpson or something? You know, but it's really regenerative economics with Kate Rayworth, and it's absolutely fantastic in its simplicity. It's basically saying we need an ecological ceiling. We need to stay within the carrying capacity of the planet. Otherwise, it's all over for everything. And there's a number of things that we've already crossed the threshold of. Um, biodiversity loss, habitat loss, climate change, you know, if we go over these thresholds, we start tipping into unknowns. So we need to stay within an ecological ceiling. But the other part of the donut is the social foundation. We need to build up uh, equality, justice, fairness, housing, uh, access to, to, to goods and services for everyone on the planet. So that's like building up uh, the deficit to a, a social um, a social foundation. And when you've got the foundation and the ceiling, you've got the donut, which is the safe sort of economic space or social space for humanity. So it's simple and it charts onto other models like the sustainable development goals um, and other approaches to try and uh, transition us into a world that works before it's too late. I like that. Jeez, There's a lot in deadly. that. Can, can I ask a, a, a different question now, just about... I so, love that. I'd love more in that, but you go. Okay, well, you can, well can, can I move it over a different yeah. way? And, and it's more about like, so say you started out the Eco Village and you had, you know, you had pretty idea, I, I, ideas of what you wanted to happen. Can you mention three things that were unexpected successes that came out of nowhere? You know, you have like, I'm an idealist and a dreamer. And so often, you know, things that you're focused on don't happen, but out of them, some amazing things happen. I wonder if you could talk about three successes and three absolute failures that came out of it that you didn't see coming. Well, um, I touched on the economics or where economics was a boring, like millions, uh, I don't think is going to be replicated. And we probably need to rethink that if we're doing anything similar. But I think the ones that um, are uh, successes that you can't imagine is the things that you can't see when you visit us. So you can see the solar panels and the, the, the regenerative aspects of the farm or the research gardens. You can see and touch them, but you can't touch the mutual aid, the social solidarity, the, the things that people do for each other, the social capital, the, the, the things that happen just from relationships and connection. You can't see that. Or because we live in an estate where we value biodiversity and we planted loads of trees and, and bushes and we have these edible landscapes, the, the just the wildlife, the bird song, you know, I, if, in the, if you'd asked me 10 years ago or even before that, what I imagined the ecovision like, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't uh, pick that as something. But now when you're living in it, 
having those green spaces and those beautiful walks and the bird song and the wildlife, and then you're in the community. Although I said it's challenging. I'm, I'm, it's, again, it's no utopia, but there is a huge, people do a lot for each other. Uh, and even in the lockdown, just to go for a walk when you were locked down and you're two kilometers and you'd have 10 conversations, uh, you know, you just can't measure that or, or get a sense of that or quantify it in some ways. So that's some of the, the surprises, I think, that solidarity, that social capital, the mutual aid, the, the, the you just, you, I mean, some of the stories within that just break your heart. It's just beautiful that what people will do for each other. So that, I think, for me, is um, the success of community. Now, again, not all people benefit from that, you know, so I and not all people have the experience I'm having uh, here, just to state that. Um, but yeah, so there's some things that you'd, you you couldn't imagine, um, and then others that you that you think, okay, we'll demonstrate high performance housing and and renewable energy and regenerative agriculture, and these are the things, the physical, tangible things that you can see and touch and do. But the other things just blow you away, I think, um, but just harder to communicate. Yeah, I've heard someone else describe it as that social capital as. Like you can't see it. I think it was Rob Hopkins talked about Totnes and he said that it's like a mycelium network or yeah. like the micro rhizal, that, that kind of white stuff in the roots that you kind of go, you can't see it, but like it's yeah. there, it's omnipresent. Dun, yeah. dun, dun. Um, and, without it, our, and without it, Dave, our health and our well-being suffers. I mean, I think this epidemic aloneness we, we have now, we're, we, we're facing huge mental health, as we all know it in this country and probably every country in the West, and it's because we're so fragmented and separated and everyone doing their own thing in their own little boxes. You know, having that mycelium of community, that sort of uh, shared and mutual aid, brings a well-being, brings a health. That's actually coming back to your gut health or soil health. It's the same for communities. It needs that uh, to be vibrant, to thrive, to be healthy. And and what about, what about stress? So like, you know, the way, like back to your saying, an epidemic alonious, and there really is. And also you see there's an epidemic of stress because modern economics, as you said, has so many of us wanting a new car and wanting a new holiday and wanting, Competing. wanting, wanting and buying and consuming Built and all this type of things. And it's, and like, it's very alluring and it's really exciting. And I'm also going like, how do, in, in where you live, down in the village, how, like, what stresses do you see? And are people less stressed? Is the pace of life slower? Are people still like, is Amazon delivering stuff down there all the time? Or is it, are you all kind of, you know, is it a form all, of utopia? All of that, Dave, all of that, it's all happening. But I think um, just on the stress or, or, you know, people are burning out all over the place in the society and the culture we live. I, I think that uh, if we can live more locally, so we're not commuting uh, as much, there's there's time for family. And we've seen it with the pandemic. You know, a lot of people will be rethinking how they work, where they work, when they work. Um, but I think uh, that pay, the, the potential of the pace of life in rural or outside the, 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 the cities can be less stressful. And I think that we're moving into a time where we're probably not going to be working uh, on one job. We're going to have different livelihood streams that uh, potentially could add more stress, uh, but potentially allows us to find meaning and purpose uh, and contribute in different ways and provide our needs. So I'm hoping that um, we, we can, uh, and we definitely need a, a new way of life. And a lot of those stress is assumption. They're social assumptions. They're, they're things that we uh, assume that we need to have. They're measuring our sort of 
um, sense of self on our stuff. So the size of car, the size of house shows something about me. That's just bullshit, isn't it really? So those intrinsic things uh, that make us happy and that we need to cultivate, we need more time to do that. And I think more time in our local places, more connection to our local places and the people around us, and especially the green and blue spaces around us. That's what we need uh, for that mental health, for that well-being, to, to de-stress, celebration, you know, um, coming together and playing music with your neighbors or having chats or playing sports. All of these things uh, don't have to be um, uh, regimented and, and formulated. They could be spontaneous and they might just happen. Art, put more time, energy into art. See, these sort of things I think can help. And environments, uh, uh, now I'm, I'm certain that we're not going to replicate eco-villages. Every town and village needs to be an eco-village within a decade, I think, or needs to start doing more for itself and having stronger relationships and connections with the people in their places. Um, so I do think that, you know, connection to green space, connection to other um, spaces helps us connect to ourselves better. And, you know, I'm all for internal work. We need to be stretching or doing your sea swims in the morning or something that and brings us into ourself and keeps us um, mentally agile and, and spiritually uh, fit. So I think, um, you know, meditation practices, uh, there's quite a lot of that. There's Tai Chi in our market square here every morning. Uh, you know, there, there's little um, meditation circles that are quite spontaneous, nothing formal, uh, but options um, for, for doing things that can maybe de-stress or make your life a little slower or easier. I thought they're beautiful things, like the idea. And when you say it immediately, like when I'm asking about stress, you say time. Because mm. time is something that like all of us have, but tend to can't get enough of it. But when you say that word time, it's like, oh, yeah. Well, well I think it's, I, I'm Taking not sure if it's that time. we can't get enough of it. I think we're too greedy in what we want to achieve yeah, within maybe. the time that we have. But can I just repeat your things there? Because they were beautiful. So time, really being mindful of our time and almost like slowing down. Local, the importance of local, living more locally in terms of being a de-stressor. Green and blue spaces, celebration. I think that's a beautiful uh, And one. the green and, and blue art. space, it must be very relaxing like to be around. Like I was reading there, you've planted nearly 20,000 trees. You have edible landscape, which is like where this, I think you, there was like a thousand heritage apple trees you've planted where you can, you know, during apple season, you can go, I wonder what this Tideman Early Worcester apple tastes like. I wonder what this James Grieve tastes you, like. You'd have some good entries. We haven't, we had pre-COVID, we used to have an annual apple pie baking contest, yeah. which, which we'd run, we'd run for, Four, 13 years I think it was yeah. it obviously didn't happen last year but uh, with a hundred different varieties or a thousand different varieties you could oh, really you get some fancy. interesting apple pies yeah we could be saying we have an apple festival every September well for the last two years we've not had it uh, we must get you down as judges for our apple bake-off um, I'm in I'd love to and it's great for our, our connection with the local community because you have the sort of uh, Irish Country Women's Association types and and uh, you know young people from traditional community coming with their traditional apple pie bakes or their apple crumbles and yeah I think that uh, again that comes back to a knowledge and an appreciation of our place and those around us you know and having that apple bake off you know appreciating the apples we have not just two different types a red one a green one but all the varieties uh, and all the sort of diversity of apples or other fruits that we have or the seasonality of our food, all of that comes into an appreciation of our, of our place and the things that we have around us rather than a desire 
just for bananas and pineapples or something from somewhere else? You know, what, what do we have locally? What, what, how do we build that sort of um, sense of an appreciation of and pride of our place, our local heritage without, uh, and I think it's really important, without um, uh, turning our back, you know, a, a localization project could sound like it's a, well, we're all right. Um, you know, it really needs to be done in solidarity with other communities and other countries and other places and have a sense of being global citizens, even though we're rooted in the local. Mm, beautiful. Yeah. And, and is that, when you're saying that, it immediately gets me, Stephen's been very interested in learning Irish over the last year Ooh. and a bit. And I've piggybacked. Can, can I just finish? Can I finish okay, this? And then you can piggyback on it. I was going to say that. So he's been very good. He's been doing Geolingo and he's done 150 days and he does five minutes a day and he's delighted with life. And last Friday, he met this local man, Brendan. And Brendan's an amazing man who we've, we always say, Dia Smarita for the last 10 years and have a little bit of banter with him. But we sat down and we had coffee with him on Friday afternoon. And we, no, just, we had Te August Oh, we had Te August Corker. Yeah, and we discussed Irish and the roots of Irish and heritage. And I guess when you're talking about localization and immediately kind of go, geez, well, language is the gateway to culture. And like, here yeah. we are, like, like we speak, you speak about six languages. But you don't speak Irish. Well, I speak you're it really poorly. To... I'm on the journey. I'm on, I'm on the, the journey. journey anyway. But uh, that, that was my rant. Yeah, that there. sense of place. Know. And that do, sense do, do people speak more Irish down there? Or is that part of when you're talking about heritage and localization? Is language part of that and art? Or how does that work? No, it's a, it's a big part, Dave. I mean, there's a lot. There's a, there, well, before COVID in the cafe, there would be a, a gathering every Saturday of Irish language speakers. Uh, we did an event on Irish and ecology, where there's a, I can't remember his name now, but an author that had written about ecology and the importance of Irish language and the way that we perceive the world through uh, Irish language is very different. Um, so I think that, again, language is something that homogenizes ourselves. We're all going to speak English on the whole planet, uh, where that sort of uh, sense of uniqueness, that diversity um, includes languages, I think. Now, I'm very poor. I'm terrible at languages, and uh, so I'm not the best to talk about it. But we have a lot of um, Padder Kirby, who's a big academic. He's written the 30 books on all sorts of things, international politics to sustainability now. He's based in the Eco Village, and he's just he's been a big academic, but he's just finished a, a master's in Irish literature. He's fascinated by Irish. And we had Nora Bateson here for a week. She's um, the, the, the daughter of Gregory Bateson, the big systems thinker. And in the discussions and some of the sessions, how important Irish languages is for seeing connections and relationship, you know. So I can't say much more about it. Dave, um, Steve probably knows more uh, of some of the words and terms. But Mongon Magon is brilliant for that. You know, how many words do we have for something or how to say something? It's sort of reduced by just having English, I think. He oh, said, I read something this morning. He said, we were reading it because... Limo Mwaley, you know, the singer, he, he was down swimming with us a good while, like recently enough, and he brought a book, like a, a book, one of Monk Owen's books, where it had about 50 words of Irish, old to, Irish words of the sea. To describe and that, the sea. And this morning we were reading one of the words because it's a bit of crack. You open up and you read one of them. And it's in one of the things he said, there's 4,300 words to describe character traits, human <laughs> character traits. So I thought, jeez, well, that's a lot of words. And it was interesting, even the word that you picked today, it was like something like, when the seas calm and you can hear the quiet mourning and sorrows the of our ancestors. Of our and ancestors. it made you go, my God, there's a lot of misery and kind of sadness inbuilt in this landscape. It was fascinating though, really, really interesting. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I wonder, Dave, Dave, if you could talk a little bit, I know you... Um, <clears throat> 
you try to have what's known as methyls, I think, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, the sense of community like heavy coming... metal nights. No, yeah. methyl. No, no, not no heavy joking. metal. But the, sorry, that's M-E-I-T-H-E-A-L. And I think it's a traditional Irish word to describe the sense of community to come to work on a project together that like would benefit the community. Like, like maybe people might remember it like an Amish type tradition where barn they'd all come raising. and raise a barn or something yeah. like that. Yeah, I think that's really important. Those sort of things can build community. We come together and we work together or we do something together. Even street feasts, you know, coming together and just putting the tables out and inviting people to, to celebrate food and eat together uh, starts to build those connections and the relationship we need for a healthy community. So if we've got, like, we're going to clean up the farm or we're going to, um, you know, we had to plant 40,000 onions on our farm, so you just call a metal, and so the members will come down and we'll uh, do it all together. We get through the work a lot easier. So I think it's a tradition, the metal, the word metal tradition is from the Irish, that connects what we've just spoken about. But as you're saying, Steve, we've got the the, the sense of the barn raising and the, the coming together I mean, Irish farmers would have had it. You know, I see it right now when they're doing the silage and gathering the hay. You know, they've, they've, they're sharing some machines and they're, they're helping each other. It's just bringing back that tradition of self-help and mutual aid. You know, let's go and work together. But I just think it actually builds community, actually builds that sense by um, engaging with each other and, 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 uh, and getting to know each other a bit more through work or doing something. Yeah, I think that's, I think working with our hands and the sense of together really does foster good conversation and kind of a more yeah. sense of meaningful purpose connection. Uh, could, could you talk about, because I know like one thing which I've also heard, which you do down there, which sounds really relevant is like the sharing of resources and the sharing of tools and could, could you like... How successful have you been with that? Because I know there is cars. And yeah, because can... even for example, I went and bought a new saw and I thought, geez, it's so nice to have a nice saw. And I only use it like, at most, you know, two hours a month. Like, why isn't there some sort of a central unit whereby there's all tools that you can go and borrow and you can pay like whatever, a monthly membership like you do for music or like you do for films. Can you pay it for tools? And I, I, I loved or, hearing the fact that you share tools and possibly you talked about the sense of machinery not being idle and machinery going or from resources. bedrooms, like such as a guest bedroom being idle most of the time, or the sense of cars or the sense of washing machines or the sense of yeah. tools. Well, I think it's, uh, again, going back to the economy question, the sort of promise of the sharing economy or the collaborative economy is that we move away from the burden of ownership and just have access to the use of. So cars are a great example. Go car, which you see in Dublin now in most cities, was actually developed here by eco-villagers and then sold on. I think that idea of um, sharing, um, we could do a lot more on. But I think the, I, the, 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 the promise of it, I mean, we're seeing it being co-opted a little in the platforms that help us share. So like Airbnb or Uber, we're sharing a, a vacant car or a spare room or a house that we have. I, I think we need platform cooperatives that are owned by the users. And so say you now see a lot of alternatives for Uber that's actually owned by the taxi drivers and the stakeholders that use it, or Fairbnb to move away from Airbnb and to actually keep the wealth distributed amongst the users rather than being sucked up to shareholders. So it's just a, a corporate model. But we're starting to see in this collaborative economy the potential of car clubs, uh, tool libraries, and much more sharing and collaboration. And again, the essence of that builds community, but moves us away from the perception that we, our status is on our, our, how much we own. 
uh, look at my saws and drills and everything where you could just be part of a tool library where you've got access to all sorts of tools that uh, are maintained rather than everyone having the same power drill they use for four hours a year or whatever time we use it. So I think the premise of it, uh, we've, we could be doing a lot more like everywhere could be, but I do see it. We have some informal car clubs. And um, so you've got a number of people sharing uh, uh, maybe three cars and 12 families share that share those cars and they've made little laps to, to deal with it. Um, two assets on our farm or, or some, of the, some of the tools. But I think we could do a lot more on it. It's something that we've not developed as much as I would like, but I do see it as a strong piece and again, that solidarity and that burden of ownership. You know, that's why I'm interested in co-housing that are probably shared through a cooperative from all having to own our homes. Um, so I just think having the burden of ownership and taken away, but still have the access when we need it. That's an amazing line. That's an amazing, I've never heard that expression, the burden of ownership. Because, you know, all of us have been like, uh, you know, in Belgium, they say you're born with a brick in your tummy because everyone just wants to own a house. And I think in Ireland, it's similar. Like people like we're all kind of, whereas if you live in Germany, people can rent their houses for their lifetime and all. But I've never heard that expression, the, and, and burden, of the burden of ownership. It's like, you know, people who don't have a lot of possessions often are trying to accumulate possessions and people who have accumulated possessions are trying to save them and mind them and protect or them. Or even in our lifetime, I remember there was, dad used to have a massive amount of CDs. He had CDs everywhere. And like now they're only used for scaring birds away or something. If you've got lots of blueberries in your garden, like, you know, because people have Spotify and there's like, that is the burden of ownership, all these feckin' yeah. CDs. And did you scratch my Mariah Carey CD? <laughs> or whatever the heck it might be. Anyway. I, I love the way you describe it as well, the shared economy. I think that's a beautiful. And what, what, what is, so, so you've mentioned this word co-housing a couple of times and it's perked up my ears and I'd love to know more about it. Because when you say that word, I think of like, you know, uh, long houses in Borneo and like, or like in Denmark, they have big, massive houses where people live in and someone cooks every night. Or, or how, What is a co-housing model and how does that work? Well, I think we've seen co-housing now probably emerge in Scandinavia in the 80s. And it's really just having your own house, but you're in a neighborhood where there might be shared assets. So every house doesn't have to have a washing machine. We just have a laundry between 15 houses or uh, a car club. So we don't all have to have two cars each or guest bedrooms that are shared rather than everyone in their house having to have a guest bedroom. So our idea of co-housing would be that you still have your own, your own space, your own little kitchen, but there's a bigger kitchen uh, that we might eat in once a week. Or if you're having a kid's party, you could rent it or it might have all our books there. So we have a big library then everyone just having their own books that you've read a million times. You know, so this, again, it comes back to that sort of owner, um, moving beyond uh, ownership of everything and having that sense of sharing, especially assets that would be well shared, you know, having uh, really good washing machines and dryers in the laundry, rather than everyone having their little washing machine and, uh, you know, that sort of thing, or uh, a number of bikes or tools in the, in the shared tool shed. A lot of co-housing communities would have, have those. So I'm really keen, and we're framing our one as a model of community-led housing, um, which is the new term, because I think co-living was... Um, it got a terrible rap with the way that the government and the property developers introduced it here, where co-living could be brilliant for people and if it was community-led. But what we're talking about isn't co-living, it's co-housing. You've got your own space, you've got shared space. And that's the, the, the definition, the best of both worlds. You've got um, the mutual aid and the, the connection. Uh, you've maybe got a shared courtyard that the kids can all play in. 
you, I'm really into mixed co-housing, so it's not all young people or all old people. You've got that mix, which I think brings diversity and well-being uh, to, to the space as well. And I think that collaborative approach just gives people a sort of a sense of being together, not just on my own. And there's, there was a brilliant film, I don't know if it's still on Netflix, called Happy. And it was looking around the world of places that you make that are happy. And usually, as you said, one of your, your podcasts, usually longer living as well, uh, these places. But they went to Scandinavia and they talked to people who lived in co-housing. And just their level of happiness uh, was different because they were connected to the place and to the people around them. And I think that's what we're lost. Our house in the States now are dormitories. Where we live tend to be where we watch television and sleep. We do everything else somewhere else. Could we, in the future, live, work, play, raise our kids and have a good life in the place we're living rather than have to commute to do that somewhere else? And I think co-housing and community-led housing like the Eco-Village just offer something different and a model that could be replicated Every town and village has a, a little area that could easily be a little co-housing development or offer a different tenure of housing. So we don't have to be forced into ownership with huge debt or unsecured tenures with the rentals. So yeah, there's a lot of reasons and benefits for doing community-led or co-housing. It's like when you say that, I immediately think of Avatar and I think of all the Omatakaya people living in the trees. Remember, they all slept in their little leaves in the trees and then they did everything else together, kind of running around. And, and it also reminds me of when you were saying about like shared resources and connections amongst one another. Because when Dan Butner, we were talking to him on this about the communities, about the blue zones. And he said that the longest living, the happiest people, even introverts, they spent typically about seven hours a day socializing amongst people who they liked, you know, and. And that's like if you do live in a co-housing facility where you you do sleep in your own place and you've got a, some kind of a kitchen area and you can retreat if you if you're sick of people. But like other than that, you're forced to kind of have to have conversations with people because we are social creatures. You know, it sounds like it makes I a lot think of you, sense. You hit the nail on the head. It's that connection, those uh, relationships that bring our health and well-being and our happiness. And I, and I do think there is something there that's just a bit more caring. Um, we can also together steward the land in different ways. So the model uh, that I've been talking about, a sol solidarity, community-led, sort of new form of cooperatives, I think could be the model for us to reconnect ourselves, to reconnect to those around us, and to reconnect uh, the, the, to the ecosystems around us and restore them. There's going to be so much uh, work that needs done um, to re regenerate our soils and restore our ecosystems, to, re to regenerate our communities and restore that sort of social capital and to strengthen those local economies so that we can be resilient to the changes that we're locked into now. There's no solving uh, some of the disruptions that we're going to face now, but how do we surf those waves in a sense rather than flapping around in the white water? We could actually build our skills and capacities to ride those waves of change rather than just being um, thrown around the place uh, and you know you know what I mean yeah, yeah. jeez you're deadly yeah very well said Davey I have two two, two questions because I know we're getting close to the to you know I don't want to run run too far over uh, one question is in terms of education in the eco village how does that work like is it Good do people one. go to the local school or are there alternative means of education systems and you spoke about something that you really believe to be important is that sen sense of intergenerational mixings and by that I mean you know kids having 
grand older people in their older age, middle age and kind of younger age. So they have many, many different peers. And even when we talked with Helena Norberg Hodge as part of the series, she talked about schooling. One of the issues she found with schooling is that it's a monoculture, that it's just we're all amongst the same age group, which is not normal. Following of society the same at large. And she just and I thought that was an amazing I'd never thought about that. So what, what yeah. have you tried anything else then in your eco village? Well, it's a really good question because when we first arrived, we did think about having our own school, a Wardoff or a Steiner school or an Educate Together school, and then realizing that the town's two schools, there was two schools in this little village, uh, were, were really suffering. So we actually made a conscious decision, actually be better to send our kids, and there's a lot of kids here, uh, to the traditional schools. But there is, um, some people send school, um, their kids to the Steiner school over in Clare. So it's quite a drive to take them to, to school every day or homeschool. So there is quite a few people experiment with different ways of schooling. Even uh, more recently, um, people talking explicitly about de-schooling, uh, actually to take their kid out of school, not just homeschool them into the same sort of curriculum, but to give them projects and nurture their ability to actually compete little projects. And I think there's something in that. But we are a destination for learning. And I think for our own health and well-being, we're all learners, right? We all have to continue to be curious and inquire and, and learn. I, I think if, we, if we're not learning every day, then our fire's not burning and we'll probably end up burning out, you know? So we need to, we want to be an environment for sort of place-based learning that, that people can come and, and another way we talk about it is problem-based learning. Have a challenge and then uh, develop the sort of learning around meeting that challenge or facilitating learning rather than the sort of transmissive learning. Me as the educator and expert will uh, fill you up with my knowledge, which I think is just uh, old paradigm. We need a sort of new way to think about education. I think a lot of the outdoor activities in some of the new uh, outdoor kindergartens and forest schools, I think we need much more of that. But we need, I think, if we're talking about youth education, we need to influence the schools that we do have now to, to bring the life skills that we actually need, conflict resolution, being critical thinkers, you know, not just uh, educating for a career, but educating for a good life. I think we need much more of that, you know, learning to cook, thinking about food, all of that should be in our, in our curriculum and encouraged to be learned all the way through our lives. I'd like to go to your school. That sounds cool. Yeah, mm. I like that. I like, I like that analogy of learning every day, like that if, it, if we don't learn every day, it's not stoking our fire because you think of like, oh, I go to school and I learn about geography and maths and yeah. uh, rather than kind of like learning in general, that, you know, yeah, like cool. I'm learning now. Um, so, so Davey, one final question is just, so, so you set up the Eco Village and it's quite an intentional um, experiment of how to be progressive and to be, originally it probably started to be more carbon- um, you know, neutral. more carbon neutral or less impact on the environment. But it seems to be becoming so much more than that. For anyone listening who doesn't have that, you know, ability to be so committed to what you're, what you've accomplished, are there basic things for anyone listening that isn't living in, you know, is living in a kind of more traditional style urban environment that things that we could all apply to our daily life to, to, to live more 
economically sa- or sorry environmentally sound or just and, the things that you've experienced community and yeah. to kind of because community seems to be one yeah. of your main pillars well, I, I i think that's the main thing that when i'm giving presentations or facilitating groups now that's what i'm focused on not what we're doing here but what you can do there in your community learning from the sort of projects like Claude jordan eco village and i'm one, only one of hundreds of people that have created this community is not this isn't some heroic journey there was there's been hundreds of us shaping this but I think the easy steps, probably the first one is what, you're, what you guys are involved in, food, and connecting back to our local producers and our local farmers. That connection starts to build sustainability, really supports farmers doing the right thing, regenerating our soils and producing food in a, in a healthier way and not for export or for you know feeding China or wherever. I, I think the other... So that's easy. I mean, food, even the Epicureans, the left, they were like the original eco-villagers in ancient Greece, the Epicureans. They left ancient Greece and set up this forest garden and lived the good life. But their thing was about simple food and always together. So more breaking bread and eating together, I think, can be done anywhere. That's why I love street feasts uh, or these sort of initiatives that just help us build community around food or GIY, really learning to grow more food that's um, not just ornamentals or what you guys are doing, how important it is to our, our health and our well-being to connect around food. Energy is the next easiest one. It's going to become easier as the energy is distributed. Right now, everyone could switch their energy account to community power, which is an energy utility set up here in Tipperary, but serving all of Ireland now, where you can actually support community-generated renewable energy. Not just corporate, uh, you know, not just uh, wooden turbines in our landscape or massive uh, solar farms. So, yes, we need to switch to renewals as quickly as we can. But I'm hoping that we can do that in a way that benefits our communities, that we cover our church roofs and our community buildings and our roofs already with solar panels and make an income for our communities. But right now, every community could switch or every individual could switch to community power. And SEI obviously has so many opportunities to retrofit your home because it's more energy efficient. And if we get a feed-in tariff, promised for, for a few years now, but soon we're able to actually make some money by putting the solar panels on our roofs. My hope is we do that together, though, not just as individuals, that we have the promise of the rooftop revolution or every town and village becomes a power station, you know, rather than uh, we all become prosumers of energy. We're producing and consuming. And that's where you might need the blockchain to, to manage all of those little transactions as, uh, as it gets so complex, the energy market. So food, energy, housing, I think is easy. Retrofit your house so it's not wasting energy and connect with those around you. Uh, David Holgram, who was one of the pioneers of permaculture, he's saying, we haven't got time for eco-villages. We haven't got the resources. It's taken us 20 years to get to where we are and we're, we're still got a long way to go. He's saying in suburban housing estates, take down the walls, you know, turn that shed into a co-work space, do, do that. So work with what we've got, you know, into starting to think about meeting our needs locally, connecting locally, uh, looking out for each other. So I think there's a, a number of ways there that are quite simple uh, and becoming quite mainstream ways that are little steps and uh, thinking about our food, our energy, our housing, uh, our, our mobility, our recycling, are we walking? Uh, are our villages and towns designed for cycling and walking? Are we good, good, good public transport? Can we do a car club rather than owning another car? Um, so as well as moving just electric cars and another individualistic sort of thing, can we think about 
getting rid of the car altogether and joining the car club and 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 working and living more locally. So these are sort of things anyone can do, right? It's not like you have to wear your sandals or be um, eating granola and muesli to, to, to do all that sort of stuff. And the key thing is, it's actually healthier and better for us. We'll feel better for it. Uh, that's the, the key thing is like uh, this, the, the, this sort of sustainable lifestyle or an eco lifestyle, I think will be good for us in the future, good for the planet, but it's actually good for our mental and health, our mental well-being and health. So, you know, yeah, I mean, I'm a bit of a zealot for this, I know, but I can see why everyone's going to have to do it and it's just going to be beneficial if we can do it. Jeez, you're, I've enjoyed this so much. This has been brilliant. You're, <laughs> you're a breath of fresh air, Dave. You really are. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. I, re I really appreciated what you said there in terms of food shared, I think is just, it, it tastes better. I think it really does. And you kind of, you symbolized it really nice. I think it's a lovely, you know, I, I think it's just so important because so many of us can eat alone or eat at a screen or eat at yeah. a TV. Because cause we, we found that recently, we go, to, we go down and have lunch at the cafe pretty much every day at one. And there's a whole bunch of friends that some of them show up at one, like different people show up at one on different days. But there's usually there can be 10 of us or six of us like, all oh, you know, sitting, having lunch. And it usually be about an hour and it's very enjoyable. It fills you up nicely, you know, more yeah, than just food wise. I think one of the things you have been promoting as well is that seasonal eating so that we're aware of what we can grow and produce and when it's in season and how we can use it. Uh, I think that's really important for people to get their head around and then even things like community gardens, you know, it starts getting us an environment to grow, but at the same time, you're growing community, you're growing relationships. And from a community garden, you could then scale up into community-supported agriculture, uh, or a community could just, I'm so surprised there's not more community-supported agriculture. There's 10 in this country, and they're all quite small scale. We have about 85 subscribers. Most have about 10, 20. But any community with a bit of cohesion and sort of sense of itself could have a relationship with the farmer. For the farmer, they're not negotiating with the supermarket or going to the farmer's market with all the produce trying to sell it at the end of a very busy week. You've got that guaranteed market. So these are little things that any community could do that. Community-supported agriculture, set up a community garden. Uh, there's so many things that... We're, we're uh, in the process that we're hopefully in the next few weeks we're going to buy six acres and we're going to set up a community supported agriculture so it's happening at least in our little part we need more of it because you know when you go to italy or france where they've got a food culture there's thousands of them you know and the other thing i'm working on which i think is really important are uh, digital markets that can just uh, increase the sort of access to local foods and um, be better for the producer or diversify our livelihood streams. Everyone could be producing for um, the, the Open Food Network or neighborhoods. You know, you don't have to just um, be a farmer. You might go back and make pies. Uh, that could be a diversification and I've got an access to it. So I'm, I'm really interested in those sort of digital marketplaces as enablers of the local economy, not just for food, but starting with food, but then local crafts or anything that's vital in our communities could be on those platforms. And I'm, I'm really keen that those platforms are owned and controlled by the communities. They're user owned in a sense. So Yeah, I had a look like, at the Open Food Network. Looks very cool. Cool concept, the sense of is it decentralizing. Like it's like a farmer's market, but done digitally. And yeah. that as, as Davey said, that instead of it being one central person that you pay the rent to, everyone pays the rent to everyone. That it's a sense of co-ownership and decentralized. Right. 
Yeah, and the great thing, I mean, we, we did our Feeding Ourselves, we do a conference called Feeding Ourselves every year. And last year it happened the year before lockdown. And we, we had to bring this into the country quite quickly. So now the platforms in the country, anyone, uh, a farmer could just use it to sell his eggs or people could come together and have a market, a virtual farmer's market. And I think there's huge scope for this then uh, for people like yourselves, as well as people that are just getting into to food and connecting again the the eaters with the with the with the the growers. Amazing, brilliant. Jeez, Dave, this has been brilliant. Really, I've wrote loads of little notes here that I'm loads of lovely words. I love it. The bird. Well, we have to come and visit when, you, when we get out of this. You come visit again. Right, yeah, love to. Really love to. Uh, any, so just a final thing about the Eco Village, if you want to mention or anything you want to mention or tell anyone about or where they can learn more about it. Well, the Eco Village is thevillage.ie. Um, the Open Food Network, you can just openfoodnetwork.ie. Um, co-housing, my co-housing projects called clockjordancohousing.coop. Uh, these are all little, a bit, just search. I think there's so many of these projects all over the place to learn from, to be inspired from, and to replicate in, in our own places, making all our places more resilient to the changes we're going to face. Amazing. Davey, Philip, you're brilliant. Thank you yeah, so much really for Yeah, really, I look forward to hanging out in person. Yeah, I can't wait. Yeah. And Thanks, come up, and come up and visit anytime. We're here, well, you know, whenever you're up this way. I will do. You just, you'd have to use the app, though, to get a car from the car club. Yeah. <laughs> cool. I, I, might love it. I might get the train. And get oh, there. even better. Even oh, better. I love it. Davey Phillips, you're a legend. I really enjoyed that. I, I say that after all, but I genuinely, I've got a big smile off my face. And I feel inspired. And I wrote down lots of cute little notes of little one-worders, like the burden of threshold, burden of ownership and ecological economics. I really like that. I I thought the concept of self-worth beyond our possessions and to create a system that encourages less sense of ownership. I thought that was a great This this is one of the, like, we've never done a series before. And I guess this community series, we're finding, we're learning load. If you haven't listened to the previous episodes, please. Was that previous you said? That was previous. Yes, thank you, Stephen Flynn. We've done other episodes in this series and they're all designed to help us together build better communities and more relevant and resilient communities. So please do check them out. As we say always, let us know on social media what you thought. Hit us up, share. We want to get the word out there. We want to together build better communities. So thank you for listening. We are most grateful as always. And uh, yeah. Sending lots of love, wishing you a great day ahead. Cheers. Bye. Bye.